Well, hello and welcome everyone. Huge shout out to those of you online today, as well as those of you who are in person at one of our locations, whether it's Saratoga, Half Moon, Latham. We're so glad you're here and I hope you had a great Thanksgiving weekend. You know, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite times of the year. I love the whole theme of gratitude, quite frankly. I I like what G.K. Chesterton said a number of decades ago when he made this statement. He said, gratitude is the mother of all virtues. I think there's a lot in that statement. And I think our level of gratitude is sort of a thermometer of our soul, really. You show me a person who has a basically grateful attitude. I'll show you a person who's probably pretty healthy in their soul. Conversely, you show me someone who is unthankful, ungrateful. I'll show you someone that no matter how many things are going well for them, there's something sick, honestly, in their soul. Well, this holiday of Thanksgiving is mostly celebrated in North America, but I was curious. And so I did a little research this year, don't recall ever having done that before, on is there a similar kind of celebration in other nations and cultures? And I I found out some things I, I didn't know. For instance, in Liberia in West Africa, they celebrate Thanksgiving on the first Thursday of November every year. Liberia, for you history buffs, I'm I'm one of these history buffs. I just love the background of things. Liberia was really established, as many of you may know, as slaves returning from the U.S. in the 1820s went and founded this nation called Liberia. Liberia, from the word liberty, which kind of represented their liberty and their freedom. Their capital city, (coughs) Monrovia. That was named after President James Monroe, who was the president at the time, and the last U.S. president that was one of our founding fathers. And so they took this tradition, this idea with them of going and celebrating at least once a year the goodness of God and his faithfulness in the harvest. We we have a number of people in our Grace family who are from Korea, And I found that in both North and South Korea, I had no idea, there's a holiday, I'm probably butchering the name, Chuseok. Chuseok is this celebration of gratitude. It kind of varies, usually in September, but it kind of varies according to the moon and the cycles of the moon. Families get together, celebrate with meals to thank God and to kind of remember their ancestors. And they go to cemeteries and acknowledge and honor their deceased family members. Well, Germany is a country that's big on celebrating and and giving thanks. Uh, There's sort of a, it started as a Christian event, and it happens on the first Sunday of every October. The name of it is Erntedankfest. Now, this is a fun one because it happens right at the end of the Munich Beer Festival. Oktoberfest, where everybody is uh, just living it up. By the way, did you know, this is just for free today, did you know that over 7 million liters of beer are drank every year just during Oktoberfest in the city of Munich alone? Fun fact, right? 
In fact, in 2019, 7.3 liters of beer just in Munich during Oktoberfest alone. And so at the end of this, Erntedankfest happens where they thank God for the harvest. Years ago, I worked with a number of uh, co-workers from the UK, and we talked about Thanksgiving some, and they don't have anything like our Thanksgiving, but some churches do pause around this time of year and kind of have a potluck dinner after one of their services, and they kind of give thanks to God for his goodness, and they celebrate that. But in contrast to all that, In the United States, celebration of Thanksgiving is huge, and I believe it should be. In fact, I believe that there's no nation on earth that has more reasons to give thanks to God than the United States. I really believe that. In spite of our difficulties, our downsides, in spite of all the divisions that are among us, we are arguably the most blessed nation on the planet. Even most of those on welfare in our culture, and I've often reminded you of this, are really better off in many ways than the vast majority of people in the world. We have food to eat, freedoms to enjoy, and hopefully friends and family that we can cherish. Bottom line, we've got lots of reasons to be thankful. So let me ask you personally, are you a thankful person? I hope you are, because among many good reasons to be grateful is that it's good for you. Did you know that? So if you have any selfishness in you at all, most of us do, you should cultivate gratitude because there's a whole movement within psychology called positive psychology, and its purpose is to highlight the amazing benefits of intentionally and consistently giving thanks and cultivating a grateful attitude. And so the latest research is just fascinating. It basically says that a healthy person is a grateful person. Gratitude produces more positive emotional energy than any other attitude in life, so says positive psychology. And I think you'll agree, no one I know wants to be around grumbling, bitter, miserable folks, right? I mean, we never say, oh, hey, let's go over to Ethel's house. I mean, she just loves to complain. I just can't get enough of it. No, when we know people like that, we're like, no no thanks. We want to keep them at an arm's length. I hope it doesn't surprise you to hear that the Bible says a lot about thanksgiving. In fact, you'll see this line in the book of Psalms, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. That line appears over and over and over again. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. And when we don't stop to give thanks, We are really taking God for granted. And when we take God for granted, trust me, it's not long until we're grumbling and pretty miserable. I love Psalm 107. It says, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for people, 
for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Any way you slice it, even in the midst of a pandemic like this, we have lots of reasons to be thankful. But I want to flip the switch here and ask you a different sort of question. What advice about Thanksgiving would you give to the people in Beirut, Lebanon today? No doubt you heard the story. Some weeks ago, August the 4th, at a busy port city, Beirut, there's this massive explosion. And in the blink of an eye, in a one horrific moment, over 300,000 people were left homeless. In one singular blast, 6,500 Lebanese people were injured, 190 were dead immediately, many died later from complications, and they already had a ton of problems. This just added to them. This Thanksgiving, what would you say to Nellie and George, for instance? Wonderful people, the mother and father of little Sophie. Nellie gave birth to Sophie, her precious little daughter. Sophie was four days old when the Beirut blast occurred, four days old. On August the 4th, Nellie was breastfeeding little Sophie when the explosion shattered the windows of their home. And despite Nellie's best efforts to shelter her precious daughter, this baby girl was rushed to the NICU with bleeding in her brain. What would you say to these parents, Nellie and George, this Thanksgiving? Or what would you say this Thanksgiving to Ahmed? Stafi, he's a Syrian refugee. Now, to appreciate him, you've got to know his backstory. He's this humble man who's already been expelled from his home in Syria by ISIS, just living peacefully there, but forced to leave everything he had behind, only what they could carry on their backs. So he finally makes it to Lebanon with his family and children, where he believes maybe we can carve out a new life here. He gets finally a home there, and on August the 4th, the foundations of his new home are reduced to rubble. And beneath that rubble, if you look at the pictures, I mean, it's a massive pile of rubble. Staggers the imagination, and beneath the rubble were his wife and his children dead. He's left with nothing. What would you say to him this Thanksgiving? Or what would you say this Thanksgiving to the people in Moria, in Greece, where the massive fire left 13,000 people, men, women, and children, without shelter? 400 orphans came out of that fire. Parents died. They have no shelter. They have no place to go. They have no family. They have no food. They're left without guardians sleeping wherever they can, exposed to the elements. What would you say to them this Thanksgiving? Or right here at home, what would you say to the myriad people who've had loved ones pass away from COVID-19? Currently, the count is over 265,000 deaths in the U.S., and the number continues to increase, and many of them, as you well know, died without their family present, and they're left without this closure, without the final words with their loved ones. What would you, 
what word would you give to them this Thanksgiving? I, I don't know if the stats are true, but in one place I read that at this point, it seems that at least one out of seven small businesses in the U.S. will be closed for good due to financial hardship. What do you say? Some of you are listening to me right now. What would you say to the small business owner who has lost years of labor, years of sacrifice, years of wages? What would you say to him or her? How do we celebrate Thanksgiving in light of all this? Bottom line, how can we have thankful hearts when a pandemic like this is shaking the very foundations and challenging our way of life? There's a book in the Bible that I used to think was the weirdest book in the world, but I've come to appreciate it through the years. It starts with a feast and it ends with the feast. Do you know the book I'm talking about? The family is all together feasting in chapter one, and then the very last chapter, chapter 42, they're feasting again, but it's a different type of feast in chapter 42. The book I refer to, of course, is the book of Job. Chapter one, Happy-go-lucky feasting. Everything is good. The sky is blue. The birds are singing. You can also he almost hear this song coming out of the pages. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I just wrecked it for some of you. I know. But it's just happy feasting celebration. And then in chapter 42, it's a feasting through tears. I wonder which chapter you're living in today. You're probably living in one of those chapters. Some of you listening right now are living in Job chapter 1. Others are living in Job chapter 42. Now, today, I'm going to compare and contrast these two feasting scenarios, but I don't want you to miss my point. My point today is we are to be thankful when times are dark and difficult, just as well as when life is sweet. Job is described in chapter 1 uh, as a man who is morally good and financially prosperous. I mean, everything's soaring. He's married, has a big family, 10 kids. He's healthy. He's loving life. He's living large. And the Bible gives him high praise. For instance, I read here in Chapter 1, verse 3, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, I really like the feel I get from this because it seems like his children actually liked each other. Boy, there's a twist for you. You can never take that for granted, right? You know that even siblings don't always get along real well, but they seem to be sharing the hospitality, taking turns, having each other over, and they literally enjoy being together. But Job knows their feasting can get out of hand. And so verse 5 says, when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. 
He knew his kids well. He knew they could party hard. And so he did what he could to protect them and try to impart some wisdom to them. But life is basically good, and they hardly had a care in the world. But if you learn this about life, things can change so quickly, can't they? And after this happy opening in chapter one, you've basically got 40 chapters of trouble. Now, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. And Job certainly had his share. And then after 40 chapters of trouble, you you come then to chapter 42, where we read, all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. This is the second feast that the book ends with. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Now, I'm so grateful that the writer of this book allows us to peek behind the curtain, behind the physical, material world, and see what we cannot see with our physical eyes. Because when we see behind the curtain, what we see is that God has allowed Lucifer to bring hardship into Job's life. He could not take his life, but he could test him severely. And boy, was he tested. Job was stripped of everything. His health, his wealth, his children, everything stripped away. His dear wife even urges him to curse God and die. So Job finds himself utterly depressed. We would be too. I read now from chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Job's saying, look, I wish I'd never been born. I can't take this anymore. I'm so miserable. And then in chapter 3, a few verses later, he says, what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Even when things were going well, do you get the picture? Job had this gnawing fear. This could go away at any time. I mean, when is tragedy going to strike? And eventually what he feared did come upon him. And then his friends showed up, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and later a young man named Elihu. But you know what? When you got friends like that, you don't need enemies because these guys were a piece of work, let me tell you. At first, they did okay. They showed up and kept their mouths shut. That was brilliant. They just kind of grieved there with Job for seven full days. Fantastic. But then they opened their mouths and showed themselves to be fools. And we know they were fools because God later says, everything you've said has been just foolish. Now, what was their problem? Their problem was that they believed that justice, get this now, is doled out perfectly on earth. In other words, it's like life on planet earth is this level playing field for everyone. Do good, you'll be duly rewarded. Do bad, you'll be duly punished. And their view was, 
that it will all work out with perfect justice now, right here on earth. We get exactly what we deserve, and we get it now on this earth. So they look at their friend Job, who's obviously suffering, and they say, hey, dude, you obviously did something to bring this on yourself. I mean, things like this don't just happen. Obviously, you've been living a double life, man. We didn't really know you. How many women were there, Job? Huh? I mean, come on, come clean. Don't sit there and look at us all pious like you don't know what you could have possibly done. This is obviously God's punishment for your sins. That was the basic message of his friends. By the way, that erroneous thinking that you could call retributive justice, retributive justice simply meaning that we get exactly what we deserve, good or bad, now. Now, on this earth, right now, it all works out perfectly with perfect justice now. So I know that's still alive and well. You know how I know it? Because as a pastor, I hear it all the time. Something goes wrong in a person's life, and they immediately think, why is God punishing me? Why is God doing this to me? Because you see, there's this retributive justice that's still alive and well. It's in the popular thinking of people. If I did something wrong, oh, God's going to get me right now. Or if I just punch all the right buttons in the cosmic vending machine, God, I'll get all this prosperity because I deserve it. Well, let me ask you something. How do you think that kind of advice would go with Nellie. Remember Nellie? Young mom, four-day-old daughter, explosion. Would you walk up to Nellie, this young mom, and go, now Nellie, obviously, I don't know what's gone wrong in your life, dear, but clearly, clearly, you've been up to mischief, or this would have never happened to you. Or would that be a suitable answer, you think, for maybe the orphans? In Moria, Greece, who have been left homeless, no food, no place to even sleep. Oh, come on, kids. What horrible things were you doing when no one was looking, huh? You brought it on yourself. Or what would you say to Ahmed, the refugee? He's already lost everything, expelled from his home in Syria, finally carving out with a little bit of hope a new life, and now the explosion brings it all into a crumbled mass of chaos, children, wife, dead. Would you come to Ahmed and say, look, buddy, I don't know what your wife and kids were up to, but obviously it wasn't good. Or they wouldn't be dead right now. Is that what you would say to Ahmed? Now, as a pastor, here's what I've observed in life, friends. There are always these amateur armchair theologians, no matter what happens in the world, that are eager to explain every event. Hurricane Katrina hits. Ah, God is judging New Orleans. Really? Oh, now don't get me wrong. Time out. Does New Orleans, like all cities, have some sins God will judge? Oh, of course. But don't be too quick to connect those dots. 9-11 happens. Oh, God is judging America. Really? No, time out. 
make no mistake, does America, like all nations, have some sins? God will judge, of course. But don't be too quick to connect those dots. A tragedy strikes a family. God is judging you for your sins. Really? Now, does that family, like all families, have some sins God will judge? Of course. But don't be so quick to connect the dots on any of these scenarios. When you do, sadly, you're being just like Job's naive friends, whose theology was lacking, to say the least. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, we got to get our theology straight. Jesus said the rain falls on the just and the unjust. In every word, in other words, in this broken world, it is not a quid pro quo. It's not a perfect this for that system. Put it differently, justice is not needed out perfectly now in this broken world marred by the effects of sin. By the way, that's one of the reasons we yearn for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because when he comes, he's going to change things. And suddenly there will be a new heaven and a new earth where we're no longer living with all the effects of a marred, broken world. So if you've ever wondered, if you've ever looked out and said, well, why is there so much injustice now? Why, why do those who are good not seem to get their due now? And why do those who are arrogant and evil and puffed up and wicked sometimes seem to prosper now? If you've ever wondered that, you're not alone. By the way, there's a guy in the Bible who'd love to sit down and have a conversation with you. Maybe you guys can have a long talk in heaven one day. Because this man named Asaph, who wrote a number of the Psalms in our Bible, and particularly Psalm 73, he almost backslid over this issue, watching the lack of justice in the world now. He writes in Psalm 73, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. <laughs> they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. He's describing people who are arrogant and wicked, right? Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Now, obviously, he's generalizing here. And then he says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. He said what many of us have thought, at least. Does it really pay to be righteous? Does it really pay to do the right thing? Does it really pay to serve God? All day long, I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. In other words, am I just wasting my time here trying to live an upright life before God? Because I don't get the full benefits of it, obviously. Right now, boy, it just doesn't seem to be paying off. Asaph just could not understand why it doesn't work out perfectly now. He goes on to say, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Get that. 
I entered the sanctuary. I stopped, I looked, I listened, and it was only then that I got a proper perspective on things. So back to Job's story for just a moment. You ask, pastor, pastor, where, where's, where's God in all this? Well, Job was asking that same, same very question. He says in chapter 23, if I go to the east, he's not there, meaning God. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he's at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. We ask, where's God in all this? Job says, I don't know. He just shrugs his shoulders. I, sorry, I have no miraculous God story about his intervention. I have no glowing inspirational testimony to go on the Christian TV program and inspire everyone with how God came through. I don't know where God is, Job says. Verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. Note that word, but. But he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. I don't know where God is, but you can bet your bottom dollar on this. He knows where I am. And I'm going to come through this shining like gold. And finally, he says, he carries out his decree against me and many such plans he still has in store. I love that. Many such plans, not many such problems, many such plans he has in store for me. Corrie ten Boom was a great woman of God a couple of generations ago. And she made this statement. It's one of my favorites. He, she said, God doesn't have any problems. He only has plans. And Corey was known for often using that image. It's become a popular one of talking about the backside of a tapestry. You know, the backside, all the threads are jumbled and gnarled together and don't seem to make any sense. And she said, we see life from the backside of the tapestry. Only God sees the front side, which is all perfectly ordered, beautiful, and purposeful. But down here, we have to see life from the backside of the tapestry, and we don't see all the beautiful design God is weaving in our lives. Now, in just a moment, we're going to close with one of my favorite worship songs. It's called Blessed Be Your Name. It's by Matt Redman. And we're going to sing it because it's taken directly out of the book of Job. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where the streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. That, that's Job chapter 1. But then he goes to say, blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. When I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. That's the rest of the book. Blessed be your name when the sun is shining down on me, when the world's all that it should be. Blessed be your name. Chapter one. But blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. That's the rest of the book. God doesn't change. What changes is my circumstances, and my circumstances will indeed change. But in the midst of the uncertainty and the changing times, 
our trust is in God alone. Do we understand that? I'm not sure as I listen to fellow brothers and sisters if we really understand. I'm not being unkind. I'm just passionate because it's a big issue. I get the feeling at times that with real brothers and sisters, we think our hope and our trust is in our financial portfolio. Will the stock market do okay? Woo! It's all about that. It's where my hope is. I get the feeling sometimes that with some brothers and sisters, they think, you know what? It's all about the government. We just got to get a perfect government, and then all of our hopes will come true. Really? It's never, never been about the government. And it never will be. Our hope is in God alone. But sometimes as I listen, I just, I just don't know if every Christian gets that. It doesn't seem so. And I could go on and on with things that it seems we put our hope in. But our hope is in none of those things. It's in God alone and our circumstances may be soaring like chapter one. They may be in the pits through tears in chapter 42, but we praise and thank God no matter which chapter we're living in. That was the brilliance of Job. He could praise God even when he was found in the desert place. Which chapter are you living in today? And I just want to remind you, God often does his best work on the road marked with suffering. I close with this. J. Wallace Hamilton, boy, when I read this recently, it shocked me. He, he reported on a survey done among the people of London in the early 1960s. So this is several decades old. And you may recall that in the 1960s, you're still going to have a ton of people alive who had lived through World War II, Right? So they asked these Londoners in the early 1960s to identify what are your most memorable experiences of life. And shockingly, many of them related that some of their most significant, even their favorite moments occurred during the terrifying bombing raids of World War II. And they explained, they said, every day was precious because we had no assurance of tomorrow. Our relationships were appreciated more. And though we lived in constant fear, we soaked up every day and lived more alertly. We took nothing for granted. And then here was the line I loved more than any other line. They said, we were fully alive. I like that. We were fully alive. And I just can't help but wonder that 20 years from now, if many of us will say, you know what? Some of my favorite memories of life were during the pandemic of 2020. Oh, we learned so much about the faithfulness of God, even on the road of suffering. We got closer as a family. We learned to trust God in uncertain times. We learned that even when the backside of the tapestry looks confusing, God is always weaving a beautiful design. And somehow, somehow through all the mess of it, by God's grace, 
we were fully alive. Father, may it be, by your grace, would you help us to thank you and be grateful, even on the road marked with suffering, even a road like 2020. And Lord, let us see that you do your best work on the road marked with suffering. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.